0: Of course, Fireball is a is a product that originated in Canada, or at least is based on uh, Canadian whiskey. And a lot of, in fact, the flavored products are uh, using Canadian whiskey as a base.
1: But we're, we're not uh, officially taking any credit for that uh, Fireball <laughs> or any
0: other flavored whiskey. Um,
1: Chuck's statements are his own And uh, I don't know if they're actually based on history I, I, I deny any uh, any flavored whiskey Coming out of Canada I don't even think we make flavored whiskey except no. For the, no, no Whiskey,
2: whiskey, the singer's getting sore We raised the roof Now we're lower in the floor The band is blistering But we got a little more
1: Welcome to The Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that tends to get off-topic. My name is Mark Bylock, I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. Welcome to episode 57 of The Whiskey Topic. Hey, guys. On today's podcast. Who do we have on today's podcast, Jamie? Uh,
3: we're really lucky, actually. We uh, we got Chuck Cowdery to come on and uh, have a little chat with us. And he's done so much stuff. He's been in the industry for a really long time. He has... Um, uh, been on the inside of the industry, working working sort of the marketing side. He's been uh, doing his own thing, doing a, a blog, uh, written some books. Like there, there probably isn't much in the, the whiskey industry, uh, specifically the bourbon industry that he's uh, not um, done. So we were really lucky to be able to have a, a nice chat with him.
1: Yeah, I mean, for for our listeners in Scotland that may not be as as tied into the bourbon community, he's essentially he does a lot of the kind of insider information as far as, you know, what mash bills and kind of history and how distilleries have, you know, how things have changed over the last uh, 30 years so we're going to get his thoughts on how things have changed in the last 30 years from uh, the time he's started up in whiskey uh, before it was popular and um, lo- looking ahead is kind of what he sees as, as future trends. Uh, before we begin that though, um, I thought i would uh, we do a little bit of News because there's a couple of interesting things came out. First of all, uh, Booker's 12 year old Rye. Um, we talked about this in the podcast, I guess several, podcast, uh, several episodes ago. Um, very excited to have Booker's. We're assuming it's going to be oaky and high proof and over the top and, and crazy. And then uh, just today it came out, we're recording this on uh, April 26th. There's a rumor it's going to be a 12 year old Rye. Again, super excited. Love Mm -hmm. old oaky rye. This is great. And it's going to cost $299.
3: Whoa! And it's
1: going to be about 600 bottles, 6,000 bottles or something,
3: or cases. Wow. So actually, you know, it probably end up being more than that. Like... Like two, right. $2. ninety nine is at the suggested retail price like that, you know, like if there's so little of it, it's, you know, I can only imagine what, like when the Taylor um, cured oak stuff came out and I, you know, found it in New York city for like a grand, it was like, wow, that's, that's a, Ooh, that is a pretty penny.
1: No, Jamie, make a great point. And that's the rumor. So this isn't confirmed, but it is, it is rumored it's going to be 300 bucks, and, uh, and assuming that is the retail price, which means you're absolutely right. It's going to cost more.
3: It's going to cost more. Wow. All right. So maybe I'm uh, – well, I don't think we're going to be lucky enough to see it up here. And, uh, um, I yeah, that was, that's a total long shot. Uh, but wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. So anyways, if anyone really loves us and wants to give us a sample of theirs, we can bring you – Love.
1: <laughs> well, I still have a few T-shirts. Actually, I, I, I oh, look at my a T-shirt. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say I have a few of the a few of the original batch one T-shirts. Don't forget these. Batch these are the classic, one. classic original uh, T-shirts.
3: Yes, yes, that's great. Way to sell it, luck Way to go. <laughs> I was like, um, I can do tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Spe- <laughs> speaking of selling stuff, uh, big shout out to the Whiskey Pilot that uh, reviewed that uh, gave us a lovely five stars on iTunes.
3: Yes, thank you. That's awesome. And, you know,
1: it is, and you know these these um, iTunes reviews are really important for us. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it means you know we get a little more attention and more uh, a more of a larger audience, and that's important to all of us. I think you know want to build up a larger community here. Um, so Jamie and I had an
3: idea. We have. I think it's mostly my idea. I was going to say. We that's a big question, Mark. Mark, this was totally your idea. He just he texted me it. So like let's let's not pretend it, I had anything to do with this.
1: Yeah, it's 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 my bad idea. Starting next week uh, for every review we get. New review we get, and we'll start with the whiskey pilot. So, we're gonna do this at least next week. Uh, For every review we get, Jamie and I will do a shot not necessarily of whiskey, I might have some vodka. So, I might even what I did not agree to that (laughs) bylaw. Well, you don't own any vodka anyway, so you're okay, you're good, you're good. (laughs) But we will do a shot of something like at the start of the show. So that you know, if we get two reviews or three reviews, we will do three shots and then we'll see how the show progresses. We'll see how it goes, yeah assuming we don't have like a guest guest on that <laughs> yeah. um isn't drinking with us um, because then you know we'll just be sloppy messes and then he'll think we're or she will think we're very unprofessional
3: that's right yes as long as we have nowhere to be that night too like <laughs> that, we need to get a nap before that but yes i'm on board for this um you know there's going to be lots of giggles i'm sure and um yeah it could be kind of a riot
1: can yeah. Kind of so, thank you, the Whiskey Pilot. Um Thank you to Glenn, which also rated us recently, and that's actually Glenn for Jameson. What a guy! Um And and all the others and D. A. home.
3: That's Trent. That's Trent. Yes.
1: So there we go. We we only know two of the people that rated
3: us. We do actually only know two of the people, and that's like and Trent listens every time. And if we do, if we don't do a good job, he's not shy about telling me. Like he's like, "Oh, there was this part and like the one where we ate the pizza. He was like, "I hated that episode. That was terrible. Never do that again. You should never be eating and talking into a microphone. Either of you, I'm disappointed in you both." So like, he he wouldn't he wouldn't give us a good rating unless he actually meant it. I believe that sincerely
1: uh and then uh, I, I believe that as well thank you, <laughs> thank you. Uh, katie taylor also which uh, i do not know katie taylor but uh, i follow her on instagram um and um a- and her husband and they they have an awesome awesome instagram feed filled with birds hawks i think i, I don't know what the technical word for the types of birds they have
3: i mean that um, is a it, bird is it's a bird <laughs> yeah it's a bird, it's a bird.
1: Yeah, I, I just wasn't sure if they're like hawks or like, like falcons, falcons. I like, remember I, I posted a photo of a bird on Instagram. I'm like, look, it's a hawk. And like 12 people are like, it's actually a hawk.
3: <laughs> oh, like, whoa. Don't screw it up, man. I know. I whoa, know. the See, nerve I'm... of you.
1: <laughs> Even my mom called. My mom's like, that's, not you. that's the wrong bird. I'm like, thanks, mom. thanks and mom. I didn't know you followed me on Instagram. What's going on here? I know. That's so that funny.
3: Happening? What would your mom do if she gave us a rating on, on iTunes? Would she be like, sometimes oh. they're funny? Not really.
1: Well, my mom already was like, my mom, um, I, I wish I could do my mom's thick uh, Eastern European <laughs> accent. My mom is like, that's part in the beginning. Why? Why?
3: Ah! Okay. The part where I'm being ridiculous? Yeah, she's oh, like, that's she the funny part. Funny. <laughs> she doesn't think I'm funny at all. That's okay. No, no. no. That's okay, my mom. Though. That's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I feel the pain in your voice. I hear the pain in no, your voice, it's okay. Jamie. It's
3: fine. I'll get over it. I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll be fine. Yeah.
1: No, my, my mom's a very tough woman. I, uh, she's, um. Good for yeah. her. Excellent. Yeah.
3: That's, I like tough ladies. They're awesome. I, I
1: don't, I don't know if she'd, um, uh, she'd give us a, maybe a three and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <or
3: something. laughs> All right. So let's not encourage her to do that. No, no, no. Mom, <laughs> don't worry about it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so anyways, we're about to get ourselves into trouble with that, uh, putting that one in the universe, but I think that's a fun idea. So, yeah, head on over to iTunes and give us a couple stars. We love gold stars, and uh, we'll give you a a shout-out and um, do a shot. Uh, Cheers to you. And if you drink with us, we become funnier. So there's a hot tip. (laughs) The more you drink while you listen to us, the funnier we are. Um, yeah, so, well, without further ado, maybe we should introduce Chuck.
1: Yeah, let's go to Chuck. Yeah, no, um, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, very much appreciated. The uh, It's it's, a, it's uh, great to talk to you, cause, especially because I've been reading your stuff for a very long time. I think I first came across one of your articles uh, when I was researching my book and kind of really trying to get down the rules of, uh, you know, what's – Straight with what straight rye and what bourbon is and what the rules around it are, and I think I think you went back to like 2011 or something like that when you first started writing about those topics. And I'm like, this is great. This is uh, this like makes everything very clear.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the first book came out in 2004, and uh, I've been involved in this um, really since the early 90s, and was in the industry before that, but it was in the early 90s that I worked on the documentary and um, about you know about the bourbon industry and uh, that was what sort of got me hooked.
1: yeah what did you do in the industry?
0: I was on the marketing side I mean I never actually worked for any of the companies, but I worked for agencies that worked for them. Uh, I was involved with Brown foreman for a long time in Louisville. and I lived in Louisville for nine years, so uh, the industry really Permeate that community and, and much more so even uh, back in that era that was the uh, late 70s, early eighties and you know there were there were a lot there were more companies there was more work being done uh, in marketing in louisville um, so it was really you know it was, it was a major industry in in not just in the sense of the industry itself but in the sense of the supporting industries like marketing and advertising and uh, public relations and display building and all sorts of things like that that uh, that, that complemented the industry. And during that era, it wasn't just, you know, that was actually a bad period of time for bourbon, but most of those companies had been the big, you know, companies that had come back after Prohibition as producers and they had a lot of agency relationships with international producers. So um, Amaretta di Sorona was distributed by Glenmore and uh, also uh, uh, one of the one of the big cognacs. And Brown Foreman also had Martel Cognac uh, that they didn't know, but they distributed in the United States. And uh, Old Bushmills Irish Whiskey and things like that. So we worked on... A lot of those big international products uh, that Brown Foreman sold, and, and Glenmore and other companies sold uh, in the U.S., and then after I moved to Chicago, I had the same kind of relationship with Jim Beam for a few years, and then, you know, so probably I'd say 10 years of, of working, uh, more than 10 years of working in the industry before I shifted over more to Writing about the industry,
3: mm-hmm. and you touched on something that I think is really interesting um, uh, when you were talking about, you know, you were you were working sort of during the the bad period, um, for bourbon. Um, and you have an article that, um, that I saw shared a bunch of times, um, on Twitter about how actually we're, we're doing pretty good in the, the, the whiskey industry right now, which is kind of a departure from what we're seeing, you know, other articles about, you know, how everything's falling apart and there's no whiskey anywhere. And so, um, uh, I thought it was really interesting, but can you just sort of tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, your thoughts on why you believe it? It is the sort of golden age of of whiskey.
0: Well, when I was coming up, I mean, when I was first learning about the industry and working in the industry, um, you know, as a teenager, being aware of it, though obviously not being uh, particularly involved with it. um, (laughs) uh, But but see, my my family did drink bourbon. My parents Mm -hmm. drank bourbon. So I was certainly aware of it, even though I wasn't in Kentucky at the time. I was in Ohio. But... But that was sort of, in one sense, how I was raised. I mean, my uh, my mom's family was a, a German beer drinking family. My great grandfather had actually worked in a, a brewery in Cleveland, not as a brewer, but as a, a bookkeeper. But still, we had that that affinity. And and if uh, you know, when I was a kid, and if my parents or my grandparents had a party, um, it would mostly be. Uh, um, Beer. It would be uh, Aaron Brew when that was still being made, which was the the brewery that my grandfather had worked for, or uh, 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 Stroh's later on, and some of those some of those brands. So that, that was, and then my parents um, every evening, you know, before dinner, after my dad got home from work, they would have a drink, and it was always a drink, never more than one, <laughs> and it was uh, bourbon on the rocks. And they were very frugal, so they bought the Cheapest Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey that they could find, but it had to be Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. They did would not buy anything other than Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, And this was in a land and in a time where uh, um, the blended whiskeys were very popular, but not uh, not in our household. So that was that was to some extent. I mean, how I was how I was raised and how I got. Introduced to uh, to bourbon, and then when I moved to Kentucky in '78, and I was in I was in my mid twenties, um, you know, I became aware of how immersed the 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 state was in the industry, the city of Louisville was. But at the same time, I was aware that uh, these companies were primarily involved now with selling things other than bourbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bourbon sales had uh, dropped off quite a bit in the seventies and were still declining in the eighties and uh, at first when when the decline first started, everybody thought it would be temporary and in fact, they kept producing at the same high level and Then, as it dragged on for five years, ten years, people began to think that it was the new normal and uh, cut back on their production and cut back on their marketing and you know, did just about anything they could just to keep the the products minimally profitable. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies got out of it, a lot of companies consolidated. Uh Brown Foreman probably would have gotten out of it except that it was sort of their you know, it was what they started with. Old Forester was their founding brand and they you know, kept up with that and then they also had this little company in Nashville that they owned called Jack Daniels that was <laughs> doing okay (laughs) and and that was part of what you learned was that you know jack daniels was doing very well in spite of what everything else in the industry was doing uh jim beam was doing pretty well so you know you started looking at it and trying to figure out what's going on here uh but really all through that period all through the 80s all through still when i moved to chicago um bourbon was just not happening Mm -hmm. um You know, it was, it was, uh, and and because that was something I'd lived with virtually my whole professional life, I felt like it probably never would. You know, that that was the way it was going to be, and it might just even continue to steadily decline. And, you know, of course, rye whiskey was practically non existent at that point. And you began to feel like this was going to hang on as maybe some kind of, of, uh, historical artifact, like, uh, uh, corn whiskey, which was never all that popular, but always sort of had, had its uh, its little pockets of, of popularity. And, but you began to feel like it was never going to be a major uh, driving force in the industry again. And then it just, um, for a variety of reasons, started to turn around in the very late 80s, early 90s, uh, internationally at first, and then here domestically, and by the year 2000-2001, there was a full-blown renaissance underway um, in the United States. And I had started writing the newsletter, started producing the newsletter, the Mm Bourbon Country Reader, in 91-92. I mean, after I had... Not not 91, let's say 92-93. After I did the documentary, I wanted to keep something going, because I wanted to keep learning about it. It was mostly... I'm a writer, and the way I learn things, the way I process things is by writing about them. So I started doing this newsletter. um, Didn't have a lot of subscribers. Was doing it, like I said, as much as anything to satisfy my own curiosity about the industry. And then uh, after doing that for 10 years, I thought, you know, I think I probably have written a book in there. uh, (laughs) Somewhere in there. So I started going through the old ones, and, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just a reprint of the newsletters, but I would use the newsletters and go through the newsletters and say, oh, well, that could be a chapter, you know, that could be a chapter, and uh, started rewriting them and and doing more research on the different aspects and fleshing some of them out, and I did wind up with a book, and that became Bourbon Straight, and then... um, you know, a couple more books since then, and and lots of magazine articles, and uh, a blog, and still doing the newsletter. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm sort of se- sort of semi-retired. I mean, I, I no longer do the the marketing work that I supported myself with for most of my career. Uh, that kind of tapered off in the last year or so. So, you know, this is mostly what I do now.
1: Yeah, that uh, that article you wrote really uh, hit home because you were talking about drinking uh, old granddad uh, bottled in the '80s, and I think just like the week before you wrote that article, I was drinking old granddad bottled in the '80s, mm-hmm. and I was like, this doesn't even taste like the same bourbon. And then uh, uh, then I was reading your article about the, you know, I mean, it makes sense that the,
0: the well, yeah, and, and demand, then, yeah, that's a really good point because the. Um, One thing people don't understand with those old bottlings is they get those old bottlings and they think, wow, bourbon was so much better than that. Yeah, because they were putting uh, 10-year-old bourbon in a bottle that was intended for four-year-old and selling it for the same price as the four-year-old because they had so much to get rid of. And uh, as consumers, we can say, wow, that was great, but They were losing money hand over fist (laughs) uh, at at that rate. And now you can still go out, and uh, if your taste runs to 8 to 12-year-old bourbons, as mine does, um, you can buy 8 to 12-year-old bourbons, but you're not going to get them for the same price as the 4-year-olds. You're going to pay a lot more for them, and that's as it should be. I mean, the the business has to make money, and that's been the, the great thing in the last 15 years or so, is that the business is making money. Uh, uh, American whiskey, bourbon whiskey, is, uh, is is the driver for many of these na- diversified companies. These companies that diversified because bourbon was in the dumpster, um, now bourbon is the thing that's, that's driving their prosperity. So it's an it's a interesting uh, turn of events. And then companies like Diageo that were kind of slow you know, slow to the game, late to the game, are now struggling to catch up. And companies like Brown Foreman with um, Jack Daniels as a kind of a juggernaut across the whole world uh, are doing very well. Jim Beam um, brand itself done well. Old Grandad, without them putting much money into it, has grown. And then, of course, they acquired Maker's Mark about 10 years ago, and uh, Maker's Mark just keeps growing and growing and growing. And uh, now, now Maker's Mark looks like a very modestly priced product, right. but because it is a little bit more than you know, other products in that, in that age range, it, 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 it's classified as a premium and, in fact, uh, you know, is very profitable. And so uh and even Jack Daniels, you know, Jack Daniels has a a little bit of a premium price tag on it and uh is you know just extremely profitable as not just a, a product, a whiskey, but as a brand, as a brand name and and sold on you know, probably I was gonna say hundreds, but it could be thousands of other products. Um you go into the grocery store and you can buy uh, you know, Jack Daniels ready-to-eat pulled pork.
2: You
0: know, <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's really been—I mean—it's been fascinating for for somebody my age to have lived through it and and really come into it when it was uh, way way down, and then watch it grow back up like this and and feel like well, when I was inducted into the. Um, I <laughs> wanted to say Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, unfortunately it's only the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. Uh, in 2009, the the inductees, the living ones, uh, get to make you know short remarks to the audience. And the main thing I said in my remarks is, uh, you know, make no little plans. I mean, don't don't uh, proceed into this world cautiously because there's really no limit to how far bourbon can go, how big bourbon can get. Uh, it's still only about a fifth the size of the worldwide scotch market, for example. Right. And uh, when you think about the rest of the world, um, the rest of the world may not like some of our uh, our policies, some of our politics, but they love our culture. And uh, pretty much everybody yeah. in the you know, country in the world uh, Sees American movies and listens to American music and wears American blue jeans and wants to drink American whiskey, and so really the sky's the limit for for what this industry can do going forward. And now we have all this excitement and vitality coming from um, micro distillers, and I think that a lot of them are still trying to to find their way and and figure out how to operate at a profit and so forth, but. Uh, ultimately, there is at least the potential there for a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, a lot of uh, keeping the big boys honest and keeping the big boys on their toes. <laughs> um, and so, it's it's really an exciting time to be involved in and and looking at um, at this industry. I mean, what you guys are doing. I mean, you probably wouldn't have um, thought about doing something like this. Ten years ago, I mean, the course of technology didn't exist, but um, but the subject I mean to choose this subject matter and not something else—I'm uh, uh, sure is a function of is the robustness of the of the and, and the amount of interest that there is in it. People do uh, actually want to know about it, and I think part of what they enjoy about it is the fact that there is so much to learn, so much to know, so much history, so much culture, um, and then so much complexity in the product itself.
1: Yeah, I, it's funny that you mentioned that. Just like it, it seems like in the seventies and eighties, you should have uh, been writing about vodka and and flavored vodka in the nineties. Um, but but you were you were uh, you were definitely on the whiskey side, which I which I think is well, great. I
0: mean that's that was all that was always my interest. But what I was doing professionally was all that other
2: stuff. Right, fair enough.
0: And fair enough. Uh, I worked a lot on bola wine and cello wine and uh, products like that. Um, you know, because that's where that's where the spending was. That's where the money was. Um, I think people would find this very hard to believe today, but I can tell you it's absolutely true that in the mid '80s, when um, when Jim Beam bought uh, uh, National Distillers, which and they called it a merger, it was really an acquisition, and, and but National was actually the larger company, but they had. You know more debt and more uh, unproductive assets and so forth, but they owned you know, old granddad. They owned uh, old crow, um, uh, old Taylor. But what Jim Beam was buying, what Jim Beam really wanted in that purchase, was the Kuiper Peachtree Schnapps. <laughs> the Kuiper Peachtree Schnapps was like the fireball of its day. It was the biggest thing going. And here's just this one flavor of this liqueur category. I mean, De Kuyper, um, at that time and still to this day, made the sort of full range of, of liqueurs. And they had made some breakthroughs. I mean, the flavor house they were using, it makes some breakthroughs in uh, flavor technology. And they came up with a peach flavor that, Really tasted like peaches and really smelled like peaches, and it was something that, you know, really was. I mean, it really was a, a technical, a technological innovation. But it just caught the caught the world by storm, and that one flavor of that one product, the Kuiper Peach Tree Schnapps, became a million case brand. A million case brand is kind of that. That's the threshold when you say a brand has really arrived when it sells a million cases. And I mean, only you know, Maker's Mark you think of as a big brand, but it only recently passed the million case threshold. And products like Bullet and Woodford Reserve are close, but they're not there yet. Um, even Wild Turkey, which has been around forever, uh, sells not a whole lot more than a million cases a year. So uh, it's a it's a you know, a million cases is a lot, yeah, <laughs> and it's uh, money. yeah, there was uh, and, and still to this day, vodka is is huge, and vodka is uh, you know there you're talking about uh, many brands that that sell more than a million cases, whereas there are only a, a handful in the in the straight whiskey business that do. So, um, you know, that vodka's still big, rum is still big uh is actually the fastest growing category. But you know, whiskey's different because of the 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 aging and, and the uh just the nature of the of the product and the and the history of it, the culture of it in the United States and the fact that it's so closely linked to American history and um yeah, you know, really is a product, unique product of the United States. Uh, you, you can't, you can make, you can make bourbon somewhere else and, and sell it in that other country, but you can't import it into the United States. And in fact, we have treaties with a lot of countries that would prevent them from even making it and selling it in that country. Um, so you know, bourbon is is very, very strongly associated with uh the United States and not with the French with even though that's where the name originates. <laughs> um, so
3: I think it's actually kind of awesome that even as someone who sort of uh, has a, a backstage view into what's going on, um and you know, being in the marketing and there's a lot of talk about, oh well, you know, uh, the bourbon marketing is is pretty liberal with its sort of history and and takes a lot of allowances. So it's kind of nice to hear that that's uh, you know part of the charm for you still that you know um, that sort of uh, romantic piece almost about it is is still there for you despite knowing sort of what goes on behind the scenes.
0: Well, and I, I never set out to make it like a personal crusade, but I have. Uh, developed a bit of a reputation for uh, debunking uh, the most egregious of the made-up um, backstories and so forth. I think it's one thing to to do it with a wink and a nudge and, mm-hmm. and and say, hey, we're having some fun here. Uh, we'll make up this character or we'll make up this you know sort of far-fetched <laughs> story. And that was one of the things that. Bill Samuels was always so good at, Bill Samuels Jr., and um, in, in the way he marketed Maker's Mark, was that he told these stories, and they were, a lot of them, tall tales, uh, usually uh, something that was had a germ of truth, but he exaggerated it quite a bit. But he always told it with his tongue in cheek. I mean, you you knew not to take it too seriously. And then when he uh, when some of the big uh, ad agencies got involved, they they did begin to take it too seriously and mm-hmm. and and treat it all treat all these somewhat some of them very silly stories as <laughs> if they were a gospel truth. And I began to write about that, and and even sat down with Bill and talked about it, and and. He even said, "Yeah, I've got to really watch them a little bit more closely. <laughs> but I've taken my because they just didn't get it. You know, they just didn't get how he had approached it, and and so you've got to, you know, take that. You've got to have a balanced view of that. I mean, Jack Daniels. Um, if you go to their website, and they may have changed them. And they're constantly updating their website, but the tab doesn't say history. It says legends and lore." You right. know,
2: <laughs> and yeah.
0: and so there really yes there really was a jack daniels and he really did have a distillery and he really did have a company and and that's now you know that all happened 150 years ago it shouldn't be that hard to, to document it but they have a claim for example one of their sort of basic claims is you know you america's oldest registered distillery well there's actually absolutely no evidence to support that claim. Uh, they can't even give a good answer to the question, you know, registered where? You know, uh, I right. mean, registered in what way? Uh, under under what law? You know, right, right, um, right. Yeah, it's just something that they. And what part of that was was certainly a hundred years ago, uh, 125 years ago, uh, when advertising was starting to to grow as a as a practice, um, the, the idea of truth in advertising just had not caught on. I mean, <laughs> it was just everybody just made stuff up and and made these grandiose claims, and that was normal. And I get a little bit resentful because that was my career when people think that's still normal. And while it it does still happen, it's it's by no means the norm. Most uh, most advertising is at worst exaggerated, mm-hmm. uh, but, but not outright dishonest. Although we've had some cases and, you know, one of the best known ones is the Templeton rye. And it's something yeah. we can talk about without, you know, fear of any repercussions because it's been litigated.
2: Right. And,
0: and, you know, it's, 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 they've, they've had a, uh, well, they had a settlement and, uh, and in effect admitted to the wrongdoing, whether or not they explicitly did or not. And one thing they did that was clearly against the law that they did for 10 years was not putting the state of distillation on the label. Uh, The law very clearly says that if you, this is true for whiskey, it's not true for vodka or other things, but it is true for whiskey, you've got to have an address on the label and it's got to be a, a place of business. And that can be just about any place of business. Um, But if you don't distill in that same state, you have to identify where the distilling was done. And since Templeton was trying to create this illusion that they were doing everything in Iowa when they weren't, um, they just neglected to apply that law. And so they never, never put distilled in indiana which was in fact the case and uh that was what really really got them you know they couldn't they could say the other things were just hyperbole and, and and marketing fluff and so forth but they they couldn't uh they couldn't argue their way they couldn't talk their way out of the fact that they had actually violated that labeling law for for 10 years so you've you've got that you've got that sort of thing, and I enjoy um, researching it. And yeah, I enjoy. Um, it's it's not so much that I enjoy busting people, but I enjoy uh, yeah, getting the truth out there, helping people understand what's real and what's not, so that they don't waste their money on things that, and companies you know that don't really deserve it.
1: Uh, when you're when you were talking about how uh, marketing used to be and how it is today, how it used to be more tongue in cheek, uh, it reminds me of um, a previous guest on the show, uh, thewhiskeyjug.com. Josh was telling us uh, when he went to the Gifted Horse, they had a launch party in LA where they uh, told the story of how this accidental mixing happened, and you know I read his article about this, and then we we had him uh, on the show, and I asked him, I'm like, so. I couldn't tell because the tone seemed very like they had actors and they had like this entire presentation and I was like I, I'm not clear as to whether or not they were being serious about it being an accidental uh, mixing uh, blend or were, is, is it just a story that they're trying to sell and you know and Josh's answer was like it seemed a little tongue in cheek but I have no idea like it just wasn't clear um, well and
0: there's a reason there's a reason they don't invite me to those things
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they don't
1: um a listener uh dan side um uh has a question for you uh what distilleries uh that have been opened in the last ten years does he think that you think will be here in the next fifty years like which ones are showing a lot of promise
0: um of the small ones i mean uh i think different ones for different reasons um the uh the, the folks at Willett uh took twenty five years to get their operation going, so I think they uh Are pretty on pretty solid footing, Um, and I think that that's a family operation, and and the family goes back some generations in it, and um, you know I think they've you know they they pop immediately to mind. Uh, The Pogues pop into mind, although they've got a much smaller operation. They come to mind for much the same reason. They've got a a deep family involvement. and and actually the the family members who are who are doing the the revival of the brand um really view it as a way to uh you know keep the family get the family together have family activities where they don't necessarily all live in the, the same place so there you know there are some a lot of times if 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 uh if there are additional motivations like that uh, that actually gives gives a company uh, uh, a chance. I, I've been impressed with, uh, uh, with you know with a lot with a lot of outfits. Uh, uh, Garrison Brothers in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, but you know you had Balcones in Texas, which was doing great things and going great guns, and 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 has done a a big expansion, but has in the process lost its. You know, guiding visionary in Chip Tate. So you really wonder there uh, whether they've you know got the mojo to to keep that going. But a lot of places have seen things change. I mean, Stranahan's um, uh, you know lost its original master distiller when they sold to the Proximo. Um, a lot of the the people who started the thing are no longer involved or involved in in different ways, but. Uh, they've now got a big you know corporate uh, outfit behind them which should should be helpful and uh you know Tuttletown the same way i mean I think that's certainly i've given you sort of two scenarios i've given you sort of the family uh family commitment long history uh, scenario and then I've given you the affiliated with a
2: <laughs> with right. with a
0: with a bigger right. company scenario. Both of which I think will uh, will help companies going forward. but I think what a what a small distillery needs is they need a um, they need a loyal uh, even passionate uh, customer base in their immediate community. I yeah. think that's the key. keep it you know i I always tell people you get a compass and draw a circle around your distillery say one mile out or two miles out and make sure that you've got every bar and every liquor store and every drinker in that inside that circle um, exposed to your product before you go outside that circle and then draw another circle another mile out and do the same thing you know keep it a local business Um, great lakes up in milwaukee Impressed me a couple of years ago when they uh, released a, a, a bourbon that they had done that they only had like I think 300 bottles of it, 300, 375 milliliter bottles, so half bottles, uh, and they said they were going to release it on this Saturday afternoon and have a little party and uh, everybody you know could line up and get a voucher that entitled them to to buy up to two bottles and they had you know in march in milwaukee where it's not exactly uh warm weather they had several hundred people lined up several hours before the thing was supposed to start and so even a couple hours before it was supposed to start they had more people in line than they had bottles to sell them um that impressed me in terms of what uh what you can do if you really work your local market and really have people people find it it exciting, they really like. You know, there's a, there's a, a much broader movement of supporting local businesses, supporting local products, um, support, supporting supporting local
2: uh,
0: farm products and so forth, but also manufactured products, and so it's 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 feeding into that. But there's a there's a magic, a mystery to to alcohol that I think maybe even gets people more interested in in supporting something local. Um, Koval here in in Chicago, uh, Few in Chicago, um, you know, there, there are a lot of them. I was going to mention Angels Envy, but they've already they've sold to yeah. Bacardi, but yeah. they're still not actually a distiller. <laughs> um, you know, so, so that, that one of the things that's been interesting in the last year or so has been the growth and the launching of what I call the mid majors, um, you know, your typical micro distillery, small distillery has anywhere from a, let's say a 100 gallon still, which is, you know, a hundred gallons of something seems like a lot, um, But a 100-gallon still is actually very small uh, from the standpoint of of what it produces. Um, Because really, uh, just to use real rough numbers, if you start out with 100 gallons of uh, fermented liquid and and distill that down, you're going to get about 10 gallons of what you're really looking for. Uh, So so a 100-gallon still is very small. And the bigger micro distilleries will have uh, a 500, a 600. They might even have more than one. They might have a, a couple of uh, 500 gallon stills. And then you start to get into uh, certainly amount of production that that is viable, but still nothing close to what uh, any of the majors are doing. And I'm talking when I'm talking those still volumes, I'm talking pot stills too, which pot stills. Um, in general mean you're going to have a a slower production and so forth. And if you're using column stills, which is what all all the big guys use, but now you've got a number of distilleries that have opened or are on the verge of opening that are using column stills, and they're almost all smaller than the smallest of the existing majors, but not much and they are going to have significant production and what i estimated is the uh, 10 to 12 that are either open now or will be opening in the next year um most of them in kentucky a uh, few outside of kentucky that they add the equivalent of another gym beam in terms of in terms of industry volume so it's not like they're doubling the industry volume or anything like that. And it's certainly not like any individual company is building a distillery uh, as big as Jim Beam or Jack Daniels, but all added up, they're going to amount to some significant production. And, this repeat, and, and what's interesting also about this is these are companies in many cases that have gone for many years... Buying on the bulk market, buying either um, uh, bulk whiskey, you know, finished whiskey that they're just buying to immediately bottle and sell, or they're buying new make. They're in effect contract distilling, where they're uh, paying a distillery to, to make for them, but then they're um, but they own the, the, the whiskey as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's distilled. And those companies are basically finding it impossible to buy enough whiskey and the only way that they can assure their supply of whiskey going forward is to make it themselves and so you've got a company like luxco out of st louis that has been in business for fifty years and been selling bourbon for fifty years but they've never made a drop of it uh, now building a distillery just started building a distillery in nelson county in 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 bardstown just outside of bardstown and they're going to be a distiller. Uh, Mictors is another example. Mictors is a, a, a brand name but a company called Chatham Imports that's been around for many years as a as an importer, as a rectifier, as a bottler marketer, but never as a distiller. And even for the last 10 years or so, 15 years that they've been pretty active in the bourbon business, they've been doing it with initially bulk whiskey and then contract distilled whiskey but they exactly like Luxco began looking at the market going forward looking at their growth potential looking at how much whiskey they were going to need in the future and came to the conclusion that the only way for them to have a steady supply a reliable supply at a at a price they could afford was to make it themselves and so they've invested and, of course, uh, building a distillery, especially building a, a distillery of that scale, uh, takes a uh, you know, multi-million dollar, uh, I mean, I would say a minimum of, of 15, 20 million dollars, and certainly can spend more than that. Um, to build something that can only really be used for one thing, I mean, that's what what kind of impresses me about people who are making that kind of investment. You build a bourbon distillery... That's all you can do with it is make mermaid. It can't, it can't yeah. really be converted into any other use. Um, Sorry, you were saying, well, saying something? That's
3: okay. No, no, no. I was, I was, uh, I just sort of, you you talking about that just sort of sparked um, a, a question in my head about um, personally, uh, what are you sort of most looking forward to, like, you know, product wise or new distillery wise? Is there something that's sort of getting you excited that you're hearing some buzz about?
0: Well, that's what I've been talking about. Is it is that I'm certainly anxious to see what these uh, companies are going to be putting out, and they'll, you know, I mean, Mictors has been actually in production for um, not quite a year. Um, Willet has actually been in production now, I think, for three years, maybe it's more than that. Um, so you're starting to be get to a point where you can start to uh not only will these companies have uh, product to sell but they will have product that's appropriately aged and so um you know you've got people like Garrison Brothers that have 3 and 4 year old product out there and probably have and have been distilling for um long enough that they would have whiskey probably still in barrels. That's maybe going to go to, to even a few years more than that. And so, uh, you know, it's, 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 I mean, I hope I live so long that I, uh, I am looking forward to seeing what, uh, comes out of Mictors, what comes out of, uh, some of you know, the Luxco distillery, um, Brown Foreman is building another distillery. They're third in Kentucky. They're fourth overall. Um, Downtown Louisville, and it's going to produce Old Forester. Uh, Diageo is uh, finally uh, decided to again. I mean, Diageo is the biggest spirits company in the world, but they've run into the same issue that Michter's and Luxco did, which is that they can't keep they can't support their American whiskey brands on whiskey they buy from other distilleries. They've just got to make their own. And so they've, they're uh, building a distillery in Kentucky that they're calling Bullet, and they have said that they will make all of Bullet there, um, and, and hopefully it'll have enough capacity to make some other things for them too. Um, you know, they've, they're the biggest distiller in the world, but they're also probably the biggest non-distiller producer in the world in terms of in terms of the stuff that that they buy, and of course everybody buys their vodka you know nobody makes their own vodka mm-hmm. um, you know they buy it from the big producers that also make fuel ethanol and 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 alcohol for the for the medical industry and and you know all the other uses of of uh, grain neutral spirits um but with whiskey, it's gotten to the point where there's just not enough uh, commodity production anymore to to supply uh, to supply these big companies. And again, it's it's so scary. Again, I, I people always ask me if I want to start my own distillery, and I'm like, mm-hmm. heavens no! <laughs> uh, it's very, very risky, very scary, and especially mm-hmm. not something you know, at age 64. You don't want to be investing in something that's probably not going to pay off for at least 10 years. Right. Uh, right. But the, um, so yeah, I am excited to see what these, these people are going to come up with. I'm also excited by, um, you know, some of the wood treatments that are being done, these that, that allow people to come up with a new product, a unique product um, without, uh taking the 10 years or eight years or six years, whatever to to have a unique product that's fully aged. Um, so that the people are doing various things with, with wood, Jim beams, uh, about to come out with a product that, uh, will in effect be double barreled. Uh, That is the, or double oaked is the expression that they use. Um, where they take it and, and go it through a normal four year uh aging process in a new charred oak barrel and then transfer that whiskey straight into another new charred oak
2: barrel <laughs>
0: where it uh where it will sit. Not for um another four years certainly but for some period of time and and, and you've got Makers forty six which is using a a a specially treated French oak uh that they Expose the the whiskey to after it's gone through its normal aging, and these things uh, you know have to be disclosed. The, la- the label has to say that this is you know that's a wood treatment. It's bourbon, but it's it's had this additional treatment to it. Uh, but they are you know the, I, it's still a pretty legitimate thing. I mean, the wood treatment is not the same as you know pouring cherry juice into into <laughs> it or honey or you know. <laughs> And of course, these flavored whiskeys that I think certainly have done very well and uh uh have have been a good source of uh profit for the companies and that's always good to anything any anything that's profitable gives them more courage to try things that might not be profitable <laughs> but uh, you know that's it's still it, most of, a lot of these things have The other good thing about them when whiskey stocks are short is that a lot of these so-called flavored whiskeys contain very little whiskey. Um, They're a mixture of some whiskey and a liqueur, and so that the liqueur part of the mixture can actually be grain-neutral spirits. So they're actually... Putting out products that contain grain neutral spirits, but they don't have to call them blended whiskeys, and they don't even have to disclose the percentage of blended, of uh, grain neutral spirit because it's a operates under a, a, a different set of rules, and all they have to disclose is that it contains, uh, it's a mixture of uh, of whiskey and and a liqueur, and that's what Jack Daniels honey is. That's what uh, um, Wild jerky is it called American honey or whatever their their equivalent is? And I don't know how much of those you're getting in Canada, but that's been of course Fireball is a is a product that originated in Canada or at least is based on uh, Canadian whiskey. And a lot of, them, in fact, the flavored products are uh, using Canadian whiskey as a base.
1: We're, we're not officially taking any credit for that uh, fireball <laughs> or
0: any other flavored
1: whiskey.
2: Um, like Chuck's statements well, are Netflix, his own, yeah. and
1: uh, I don't know if they're actually based on history. I, I, I deny any uh, any flavored whiskey coming out of Canada. I don't even think we make flavored whiskey, except no, for uh,
2: no, no, no. no, no,
0: they make the whiskey, and then the flavoring <laughs> takes place in the U.S., which is a, is the case. I'm I'm sure with, with most of them. Uh, totally believe, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it, and, and you know, Canadian whiskey has benefited from this, too. I mean, I, I don't have quite as much interest as I do in, in bourbon, but there again, the same sorts of things have been going on, people innovating, people trying new things. Um, uh, Forty Creek, uh, you know, very successful, Um You know the 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 guy there, um, John Hall. Yeah, John Hall. um, He 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 worked so hard for so long that I swear he never changed his shirt. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of an inside joke because he always had a uniform and he always appeared wearing the same, what appeared to be the same shirt, which I'm sure he had two dozen of. but then he managed to sell sell out to a big company and got a real nice payday. And uh, God bless him because he he worked very hard and mm. and and did a lot of lot of good things. Um, you know that's an industry in Canada that's even more consolidated than it is in the United States. Fewer companies in, involved, but even those big companies of you know Diageo, which of course owns. Crown and and uh, uh, now most of the Seagrams, certainly all of the Seagram's whiskeys, and um, you know it's it's really just a a handful of companies, but uh, but even they are, are are doing some interesting and innovative things with with grain mixtures and with with uh, uh, you know one thing that Canada can be maybe a little bit prouder of is the um, the rise, uh, mostly from Alberta distillers, that have been imported into the U.S. under brand names like Pig and uh, uh, Jeffersons and, and others like that, that are uh, um, actually true, true, true straight rise, um, and not uh, and not blended whiskeys. Yeah, um, that are very high quality and have done very well, and make all, you know, sold at a very high price and, and make a good profit. So uh, it's certainly not limited to the United States. Uh, the Canadian uh, producers have, have done a lot too. But I yield, I yield to to Gavin de Kergamo on Gavin uh, de Kergamo on anything having to do with uh, Canadian whiskey. He's my guru when it comes to. Canadian
1: whiskey yeah devin has uh, been a uh, guest on the show a couple of times and also uh, very much helped me with uh, my uh, Canadian whiskey section in the book cause, uh he's pretty much he knows everything it's really great having having him well, you know, uh, in Canada
0: I mean Dave, David Broom who's one of the best known white writers about whiskey internationally and has written you know, he's primarily a scotch writer although he has done quite a bit with Japanese whiskey as well and you know did a, a, a big you know coffee table luxurious uh type book but he let Davin write the Canadian chapter i mean he he interviewed me for a couple things on the american thing and i got credit but Davin actually wrote the
2: canadian
0: whiskey chapter <laughs> uh david dave didn't even you know feel like felt like that was the, the only way he could uh, he could get it right so yeah Davin cuts a pretty big uh a pretty big figure
1: uh, Absolutely, he's a
0: good guy, and that's uh, that's been one of the things. It's, you know, we're having a very nice chat here, even though we've never met before. Um, um, the you know, it's a, it's a, it's <coughs> it's a fun industry to be involved with when you think about it.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, sure. you
0: people who who um, make and drink whiskey for a living are generally going to be pretty friendly convivial people uh, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, i mean it, it's sort of like i, t- I tell people I say, if you know you, you if, if you're if you're not having fun at this you're doing it wrong
3: you're doing that's actually that's perfect that's yeah. a
1: perfect note to end on we yeah uh, we shocked. Um, yeah we're have, that's um, I think you pretty much I had a list of questions and you covered everything <laughs> which is great well done
3: um,
1: but um, we're gonna uh, link to uh, to your book our uh, whiskey dub buzz is gonna have a, a shop uh, link by the time this goes up so people can actually buy the books because we've had many authors uh, from uh, different whiskey authors from around the world talk so we'll make sure to link that uh, book on the website as well uh, you You are not on Twitter. I should say you are on Twitter, but your only tweet is, I am not on Twitter. Um, Which has
0: become become so hugely famous that I don't dare go on Twitter now because everybody gets such a kick out of the fact that I made that one tweet. (laughs) But, awesome. uh, I mean I hear just... about that all the time.
1: <laughs> no, I love, I love it. it. I love it. I love it. Uh That's but we'll we'll link to your uh we'll, look, we'll link to your Twitter profile as well. Why not? You should get followers. Doesn't matter if you use it. <laughs> but uh more importantly, the blog, which I think is a very like as I'm sure our listeners have heard, uh a very kind of practical, open way of talking about whiskey, very realistic mm-hmm. and business focused, but also kind of the authenticity yeah. as well. And I, I very much enjoy uh your writing. Uh, thank you, Chuck, for coming on. I very much appreciate it.
0: Thanks. Well, thank you, guys. I enjoyed it.